We are now in the, the fifth week of our 10-week series in the, in the book of Philippians. And this week, a simple truth is in the passage. Stories shape us. Stories shape us. Whether they're bedtime tales or myths, whether they're, they're histories or poems, whether it's a worldview, uh, all play a role in shaping and governing our lives. And yet, all of us tend to come under a single story that shapes our lives. Uh, the movie, The Grey, have you seen it? The Grey, Liam Neeson, great movie. It's a a perfect example of this. Here's Liam Neeson. He plays a guy named John Otway in the movie. And the movie, it starts out, just this man is clearly broken. He's on on the the verge of falling apart. Uh, he's, He's in the Alaskan wilderness. His job is as a sniper to kill wolves that are trying to attack an oil drilling team. So killing wolves and oil drilling, clearly this guy would be popular in Vancouver. And right from the beginning of the movie, you just know his life is falling apart. And he's on the verge of suicide. But then he remembers a poem written by his father. And it recites in the movie, once more into the fray, into the last good fight I'll ever know. Live and die on this day. Live and die on this day. He recites it, and then he chooses to live the fight of another day. Uh, I'll try not to spoil the movie, but the rest of the movie takes place after a plane crash in the Alaskan wilderness, where a few survivors are slowly picked off one by one by wolves. You know, encouraging stuff. And the last scene of the movie is John Otway. He's the last one remaining, and he's fighting the pack of wolves. And so he takes some shards of glass and tapes them in his left hand. He takes his knife, tapes it in his right hand. Epic man movie, I know. And then the poem recites, once more into the fray, into the last good fight I'll ever know. Live and die on this day. Live and die on this day. And then this determination sets in his eyes. And you can watch the rest on Netflix. Uh, the, The poem, it bookends the movie. This poem is the story by which John Otway Uh, lives his life. It's how he understands life. It's how he navigates living life in the world. It gives him a sense of purpose. Life is a fight. It's a fray. It's hard. And every day is life and death. And you have to pick as much as you're able. I say all of that to say we all have stories uh, that govern our lives. And today in Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11, We are going to look at the story that governs Paul's life, that governs the church's life, that should govern our lives. And and scholars have called uh, verses 6 through 11 Paul's master story. And rightly so. This is the story of the gospel. The news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. This, This is the crux of the Christian faith. And these verses, they are structurally placed in Philippians It's that everything before them and everything after them draws their force from them. Which is how this story should function in our own lives. How we act and how we think and how we live. It should all draw its force from the story of the gospel. So this morning I want to look at three things. I want to look at a picture of this story. I want to look at the story. And I want to look at the place the story has in our lives. So open your Bibles with me to chapter 2 of Philippians. We'll begin in verses 1 and 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
This is a, a snapshot, a, a picture of the story that Paul and the Philippians live by. It's the story enfleshed in their lives, made visible through their lives. And Paul, he's still filling in the picture of what it means to be in Christ. This is central to Paul's theology, what it means to exist in union with Christ. And he is still hashing out um, some of the implications of chapter 1, verse 27. Live a life worthy of the gospel. And here's what we see. Paul paints a picture of a community built upon mutual encouragement. And Paul, he's not talking about cheap platitudes. Like when people are having a hard time and people say, you can do it. Everything will be all right in the end. If it's not all right, it's not the end. No, this is not what Paul's talking about. And that is not helpful to say to someone who's suffering. Paul, um, he uses the word encouragement in the true sense of the word. To give another courage. So the church at Philippi, it is a courageous community because their strength is in Christ. It's not rooted in platitudes, it's rooted outside of themselves. Which is why it's also um, a picture of a community built through participation in the Spirit. This means fellowship with the presence of God. Uh, the, The story they're embodying, becoming a courageous community, is only made possible by the Spirit of God breathing life into them and continually empowering them to be this community. It's not a community built on human ingenuity or by talent. It is a community built by participation in the ever-present spirit of Christ. Which is why it's a a community of affection and sympathy, Paul says. Which can be translated mercy and compassion. This is a community of deep affection towards one another. Which actually takes a lot of courage and vulnerability. Which can only happen because of the presence of God. But what all of these characteristics of the community have in common, encouragement, participation in the spirit, uh, sympathy, compassion, is that they can only be displayed in relation to others. They require a community to be expressed. Paul is saying if you're going to live a life worthy of the gospel, then it can't be a life lived in an isolated bubble. You depend on other people to become more fully who God intends you to be. And all of this, this is just a snapshot, just a a glimpse of a gospel-centered community. But to simply pursue the characteristics of this community is to miss the point. That wouldn't be enough. What Paul wants to make clear to the Philippians, what Paul wants to make clear to us is that this picture of community only emerges when they share a common story. The story is the means by which the picture becomes visible. He writes in verse 2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Twice here, Paul, he's, he emphasizes the mind. And, and this word is a little tricky to translate into English. We, we translate it as mind, uh, but it's not necessarily relegated simply to the space within our brains where consciousness presides and where we think. This is not what the word is talking about. It is a holistic integration of thinking and acting. Paul could be saying, uh, share a common way of thinking and acting. So this this picture of a beautiful community only will flourish or continue to flourish in the Philippians' lives if they share the same story that shapes how they think and act. And it has to be a story whose aim is love. 
He says, have the same love. Because if it's not a story that captures the affections of the human soul, if it's simply relegated to the intellectual space of our minds, then it is not a story that will be powerful enough to transform a life, let alone a community. Have the same mind, yes, but have the same love. This is a a photo of Clara and Julia Sobrata. They they met when they were 18 years old. They got married in 1939. They are now 99 years old each. And recently they celebrated their 75th wedding anniversary. How awesome is that? And so they decided to renew their vows at their retirement home. And understandably, the local news station came into the retirement home, filmed the service, asked them a few questions, and they asked, you know, 75 years of marriage, this is a long time. What are some of the secrets to your long-lasting, loving marriage? They said a few things, simple things. Never go to bed angry. It's in scripture. Always forgive. It's in scripture. Say, I love you very, very often. Might be in scripture. Uh, But what a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of of a fulfilled life. 75 years of marriage. Many of us in this room, like we would love that to be our picture, to be our story. And for others, maybe it's not Clara and Julia. You know, like that's okay. Maybe you look at other pictures and get inspired. Maybe it's the artist who's made it, who's living you know, the, the, the dream life, producing great art. Maybe it's the city planner who has transformed a community through, through their hard work and effort. Maybe it's the lawyer who's implemented uh, social policies that have positively impacted society. You know, whatever it is, the picture uh, that inspires life in you, we all know what it is to look at a picture in someone's life that has emerged from their life and say, I want that. Maybe not that exactly, but something a lot like that. But we know behind every picture is a story. For Clara and Julio, 75 years of marriage didn't just happen by accident. It it came because they share a common pattern of thinking and acting. Essentially, they had committed to relentlessly communicate with one another. Never go to bed angry. Like That only happens if you're committed to arguing into the wee hours of the night. Always forgive. Like, that only happens if you're willing to absorb the offense and never hold a grudge. Say I love you all the time only really means anything if you put just as much effort into making sure that your words are backed up by actions. But it's the result of sharing this same pattern of thinking and acting and hard work and commitment that has birthed this picture in their lives of 75 years of marriage. Whatever picture it is that inspires you, you know it has a story that shapes how people think and how they act. But honestly, sometimes we can hear the story, the full story, and we say, oh, it's too much. It's too much work. We can look at the picture Paul paints of community and and say, I want a community like that. Until we see the full story behind it. Because this sort of community doesn't come cheaply. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing. Underline that. Nothing. From rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. For this picture to emerge in a community's life, to emerge in our community, it means that we can do nothing from selfish ambition. It means that uh, 
we have to be dislodged from trying to be the center of our own stories. Which means we can't strive after our own agendas and dreams and desires. And now it's not that we don't have these things. I want to be clear. Paul says, don't look only to your own interests. You don't lose a sense of yourself and your, your own desires. You, uh, you just don't only have a sense of yourself and your own desires. In other words, you're humble. Humility, C.S. Lewis says, is, is not thinking less of oneself, but thinking of one's self less. Humility isn't some sort of self-hatred. It, it's just simply being so focused on other people that you start to think of yourself less. You don't lose a sense of yourself. You just have a sense of others. And Paul says that um, this will be rooted as the church sees others as more significant than themselves. He's saying this is the crux of what it is to have one mind, what it is to have one love. That the story that shapes the Christian community is one that allows no one to put themselves at the center. Now this sounds nice in theory until you actually have to practice it. Since Ansley was born, Julia and I have had this new battle in the morning. It goes something like this. We're asleep. We hear the baby crying. It wakes us up. And then someone says, can you go get the baby? And then the battle is who can stay in bed that extra like 15 to 20 minutes longer. And every morning, it's just the same thing over and over. And it's brutal. Anyone who's had kids, you know, like this, that 15 minutes is like golden time. But lately, I decided, you know what? I'll man up. I'll, I'll be humble. I'll, I'll count Julia as more significant than myself. I'll, I'll serve her. So for the past few weeks, I've actually been getting up without her asking. Often she asks, but, you know, once I'm on the way out. And getting the baby and, and bringing the baby to Julia for her. And I thought, you know, this is a really great way of, of serving Julia so that she can stay in bed 20 to 30 minutes longer while I get ready for my day. And Julia, she gives a totally different perspective. She says, staying in bed to feed your child is not the same as sleeping. But you know what? If you're in the horizontal position like that, sleeping in my books, <laughs> not the point. I've been trying, right? I've been trying to serve. I've been trying to be humble. But just the other day, and you know how this goes, morning just seemed to come a little quicker than usual. Ansley wakes up. She starts crying. And I think, I really don't want to get out of bed. And Julia says to me, will you go get the baby? And I say, No. And we just lie there, and I say, you go get the baby. And she says, no. And I say, well, I'm tired. And she says, well, I'm tired too. So I lie there a little longer, and I say, you know what? I've been getting up the past couple weeks. I think it's your turn. Way to use humility to justify yourself, right? Uh, didn't work. Didn't work. So after another minute, this is what I did. I said, well, if I can't sleep in, you can't sleep in. And I ripped the blankets off of us both and got out of bed. Really humble. Right? Humility, it sounds good in theory until you actually have to practice it. We can look at the picture Paul paints, but then see the posture that it takes to acquire it. You know, decentering ourselves, not thinking too much of ourselves, caring more about the interests of others. And we can say that's just too much work. Even in Philippi, anyone on the outside looking in on the church's life would say, no, that's too much. In their world, humility was a quality only appropriate for slaves. 
according to their cultural practices, uh, society depended on people understanding their place. So people needed to know uh, who was superior and who was inferior. And you would treat people differently depending on their place in society. And for those of high status, humility at best would have been seen as inappropriate. And at worst would have been seen as socially destabilizing. Because they needed to assert themselves so people knew where they stood in the social pecking order. And if they embraced humility, well, for goodness sakes, this would put society at risk. Society would begin to crumble. The, the Roman society had a very negative view of humility. This gives us just a small picture of how countercultural Paul's suggestion is here. The picture of Christian community is dependent upon humility. The very thing that their society as a whole thought would destroy society as they knew it. So it would mean for the Christian community to self-identify with the very lowliest in society. And we also know how much it can cost to be humble. If we take the command seriously to count others as more significant than ourselves, it's costly because we know that our dreams and our our aspirations and our hopes, they might get deferred. They might not even be attained. Um, You know, you might not ever get to sleep in past 6.30 a.m. ever again. Like, if if you really count others as more significant than yourselves, if you you really embrace humility, you might um, never get the recognition that you desire. If If you embrace humility, it means that your spouse or your your partner, like they can never uh, exist simply for your own happiness. They don't exist for your self-fulfillment. If you embrace humility, it means that your career might not advance in the way that you want. Humility, it's costly. We know this. And it seems hard and it seems like a tall order to say, live a life that isn't about you. But that's only the case if you think that humility is something that we have to muster up. We don't want to miss what Paul is actually saying. He's not saying that we can create humility. That's not how humility works. Sure, you can pursue humility, but that doesn't make you humble. You can't just go and create it because then you're still focusing on yourself. The most humble people you'll ever meet have no idea that they're humble. They would never describe themselves as humble. And furthermore, uh, humility is not the story behind the picture that Paul paints. Humility is just a foundation, uh, a foundational characteristic that the gospel births within us. Yes, it underlies Christian community, but it's not the story that creates this community. Which is why Paul says in verse 5, Have this mind, this humble mind, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The one mind they're supposed to have as a community is the mind of Christ. Which Paul says is is theirs simply by belonging to Jesus, by being in Jesus. For Paul, um, it is the humility of Jesus that sustains Christian humility. And while Paul is, on one sense, calling the church to imitate the humility of Christ, he is primarily reminding him that it's the story of power of the gospel alone that births humility within us. You see, while this picture of an encouraging, spirit-filled, merciful, compassionate, humble community is appealing, the picture of the story 
isn't nearly as appealing as the story itself. Which brings me to my second point, the story. We're now in the, the center of the letter of the Philippians, uh, verse 6 through 11. Um, and one could say that these verses capture um, the essence of all Christian theology and life. Paul says, you know, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say in verses uh, 6 through 8, a succinct uh, summary of the gospel. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me. Jesus, who although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is an undeniable assertion of Jesus' divinity. And while the early church doesn't use the Trinitarian language that we're familiar with of, you know, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you see in these verses the foundation by which the church came to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity. But that's not what is most important here. The important word is one that we often gloss over, although. Although he was equal with God, he did not consider his equality with God a thing to be grasped. But the word in Greek there isn't conveying necessarily that we can't fathom equality with God. I mean, technically we can't, right? Because we're finite beings with finite minds and he's an infinite being with infinite minds. Yeah, we can't grasp it, but that's not what this is about. This would be better translated as he did not consider it something to be used for his own advantage. Although Jesus dwelt in the glory of God, although he is the eternally begotten son, although he is one with the father, although he could do anything as the all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God, he did not use his eternal nature for his own advantage. That was for effect. Instead, emptied himself. Although he had preeminence and glory and power, he emptied himself by beginning a great descent. He descended by becoming a servant for our sake and for the sake of our salvation. He descended by taking on the form of a human, incorporating two natures into his one person, fully God yet fully human. Although he was God, he humbled himself by being faithful and obedient to the Father's will, always Uh, freely and uh, carefully doing what the Father had him do, never erring all the way to death. Although he is the source of life, although he is the author of life, he entered not just into our form, but descended all the way to death. Paul says, even death on a cross, the most humiliating death that that culture could fathom. Although he was God, he identified with us in such a way that he descended into the most humiliating death, all for our sake. That's the humility of Jesus. That's counting others as more significant than yourself. But do you know what's amazing about this? The word although can easily be translated as because. The scholar, uh, New Testament scholar, Michael Gorman, 
proposes that both of these meanings are at play in, in, in Paul's thinking. First, it's the surprise. Although Jesus was in the form of God, he used his power and authority in a surprising way. But secondly, it was because Jesus is in the form of God that he acted in this surprising way. That the way in which Jesus acts is actually telling us something about the heart of God. Although he was God, he did this surprising thing, but he did that precisely because he is God. This is a a revelation that redefines any notions of God. God, according to Paul, in the Christian tradition, is a humble, self-emptying God who will go to any lengths for our salvation. He will descend that we might be restored to his unceasing love, which means uh, I don't care how far you think you can descend in your life or how far away you might think you are from God. You cannot outrun Christ's descent. Sin as deeply and horrifically as you want and Christ will meet you there. He will descend. It's a beautiful truth. But if the story simply stopped at Christ descending to death, if death had the final say, it would rob the story of all its validity. No, the the Christian church and the scriptures teach that Christ resurrected and and it was a historical reality. A couple of weeks ago, we preached on this. You can go online and look it up. But this, this is not just a fabricated myth. Christ resurrected with his body within history. He defeated the grave and then he ascends into heaven with his redeemed and renewed humanity. Which is why Paul writes in verses 9 through 11, Therefore, because of his his descent, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When God exalts Jesus and bestows upon him the name that is above every name, don't be mistaken. This is not some sort of promotion to a position that he did not once have. This is not man becoming God. What's going on here is earth is in view from heaven. This is a pronouncement to all of creation about who Jesus Christ is. And what he has accomplished and his lordship over all of creation in heaven, on earth, and even under the earth. It's not a promotion, it's a pronouncement. It's a pronouncement of the story. Of the story at the center of the universe. The story that gives birth to this picture of Christian community we see in verses 1 through 4. The story by which Paul and the Philippians navigate life. The story by which... Uh, They and us should try to dwell within in such a way that it becomes our one mind that shapes how we think and how we act and how we navigate life within this world because it is the one story that, that is fundamentally true. The question, though, is what place does this story have in your life? Paul calls us to have one mind. Which means that the story of the gospel can never be um, just another story among stories. It will dislodge any competing stories that fight for our minds and our affections. Uh, Whether it's the poem that we love or the worldview that we held 
or the standards that society tries to push upon us, or whether it is the memories of guilt or shame and pride that play on repeat telling you who you are by reminding you of what you've done. The gospel will dislodge these stories as it governs your life and and reshape how you see God and how you see the world and how you see your life within that reality. Take Paul as an example. In a couple weeks, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3, where Paul recalls his life as a pious, righteous Jew. But then God revealed Jesus as the Messiah to him. And in light of Christ, Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Any claim of goodness or status or accomplishment that might have some sort of merit before God, Paul says, I count it as a loss. The only thing that matters is the gospel. Only the gospel can set Paul right before God. And so the, the gospel became the only story that governs and shapes his life. And for Paul, that meant reinterpreting, uh, reinterpreting the entire narrative of Israel in light of Jesus as Messiah. Reinterpreting everything that he ever believed so that it was in alignment with the gospel. For some of the Philippians, they would have had to abandon the worldview of the Roman Empire. Remember, their culture despises humility. The Philippians can't despise humility anymore. They proclaim a humble God, which is offensive. But it also forces them to no longer act within the world according to the world's standards. They also live in a society that confesses that Caesar is Lord. That he is a divine being, Lord over all of creation. No, but now they confess that Jesus is Lord. And that confession could have them crucified as enemies of the state. They had to recognize that because of the gospel, they are now diametrically opposed to the values and worldview of Rome. But they still faced public ridicule and shaming for worshiping a humble God because it didn't matter, because the gospel became their all. The gospel and that story became what shapes how they think and act, no matter the cost. So for us, just like Paul, the gospel stands in just as much tension against our desire to assert our own goodness. The gospel stands in just as much tension with our society as it did for the Philippians. So we have to ask, what story is going to govern and shape our lives? Is it going to be secular humanism? It's pretty popular in Vancouver. We can be good people. We don't need God. Is it going to be moralism? You just have to try really, really hard to be a good and decent person. Is it going to be some sort of syncretism where you mix and match your favorite religions and truths and create your own little worldview? What's going to be the story that shapes and governs your life? The gospel, by its very nature, cannot be one story among other stories. Because as Paul says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The universal truth of Jesus' lordship requires us to bow our knee and surrender our lives. The gospel then can't be relegated just to a set of beliefs that we hold in our minds. 
as much as our society would like to tell us that we can have our beliefs but just keep them to ourselves. No, when it governs and shapes our minds and our lives, a different picture begins to emerge. Uh, And not just uh, within our community here. It's not just that we become this encouraging, sympathetic, and compassionate, spirit-filled community. But the gospel governs and shapes our family and our, and our career and our relationships and our political interactions and our social interactions and our cultural values. And it affects our hobbies and the things we create and our joys in every area of life. We are trying to bring our lives down in such a way that we recognize the universal lordship of Christ over all things. Which changes how we think about things, but it also changes how we act within things. It's the truth of the gospel. But as a result, the foundation of our lives and community is humility. You see, humility comes naturally through the story, not because we muster it up, but because we have to bow our knee in order to enter into the story. Yes, pursue humility, but recognize that your humility in relationship to others is dependent upon your humility before God. Humility will flow from the gospel because we want to see the name of Christ exalted in all areas because we believe that his is the only name that will be exalted in earth and under the earth and in heaven. It forces us to bend our knee. When we bend our knee in that realm, we find that we become humble in other realms. That's not easy. I'm not saying I've got that down. But this is the posture by which we enter into this story. So what is the story that governs your life? Ultimately, your knee is going to bow. And you are going to confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the outcome of the gospel. The question is, where will you ultimately be when you do it? The good news of the gospel is that we can humble ourselves now before God humbles us ultimately. The scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Have you ever thought about why? Is it just that God is vindictive against the proud? It's because there is no pride within God. To be proud is to actually set your nature against the nature of God. And God gives grace to the humble because when we embrace humility, we are actually aligning ourselves with the nature and character of God. And when we humble ourselves, when when we allow the gospel to shape how we think and how we act and how we live, we, we begin to think and act and live more like the humble God that we worship.